1: Check out Qualia NAD Plus risk-free for up to 100 days at neurohacker.com slash dave15 to save an extra 15%. That's neurohacker.com slash dave15, Qualia NAD Plus. It's what I use. Everyone's talking about red light therapy beds, and for good reason. There's a company called ARRC LED that's building an entirely new class of LED devices. Today's cool fact of the day is that back in 1918, people created face masks out of cheesecloth to deal with the Spanish flu. However, it turns out that one of the likely contributors to the death rate of the Spanish flu back then was that aspirin had just come off patent in 1917, and they were treating people with literally handfuls of aspirin. It turns out that an aspirin overdose produces wet mucus in the lungs. Hmm... For a seven day free trial. Today, we've got Jason Nunnally on. Jason works in the internet and communications industry, kind of like I have for a long time. He sold his first company in 2000 and spent a lot of time working with small businesses, helping them use the web and the cloud, things like that. So, why would we have him on the show? Well, because he took all that technology and he put it to work at Dose IQ which is a wellness journal and a set of apps that are designed to make self-tracking and health monitoring simple for anyone. He also happens to know an awful lot about some of the bulletproof things that we talked about on the show, having done some amazing self-experiments around using bulletproof coffee and using lots of eggs and things that you've definitely read about on the blog. So he's going to share some of what he learned there. Jason, welcome to the show.
2: Thanks, Dave. I'm uh, really excited to be on the show. I have to tell you, I've enjoyed listening to your podcast and reading your articles for quite some time now.
1: It, it's a pleasure to have you on, and I love some of the things you've written about some of the experiments there because you're one of those guys like me who will look at something and say, "Is it reasonable?" Like, let's jump in with both feet and give it a try and see what happens. And you've had some some pretty f- profound results. But before we get into the the biohacking stuff you've done. Tell me a little bit more about yourself st- so the audience will understand what you do and how your passion in life aligns with this self-tracking stuff.
2: Well, I live in a small town, and actually my first company that I spun out was an internet service provider in a small town. And I've had a lot of the cost of living associated with living small town rural lifestyle, which means that I've developed the same problems that you developed living a faster-paced lifestyle in tech. Which is you spend a lot of your day looking at a screen, you eat food that makes you happy and you get fat. So I started looking into how to solve that about two years ago. I started reading blogs, reading books, and I found pretty quickly that most people had it really wrong. There was a lot of diet programs, there were a lot of drugs, there were a lot of options. But aside from gastric bypass surgery and some other really extreme solutions, there didn't seem to be solutions that really worked and stuck for most people. So I started trying different things myself. That led me to an obsession with not just how do I make myself feel better, but how do I improve myself so that I can perform at a higher level. And the more I looked into that, the more I was attracted to experimentation. That led me to trying things like bulletproof coffee, for example, which I've used to improve my mental performance. Be happy to go into that in more detail. Um, diet modifications to improve energy levels, and, of course, some of the metrics you look at for heart health. I have a family history of both diabetes and heart disease, so that's something that is pretty important to me. And then that sort of spun into, well, I work in tech for a living, and a lot of the solutions were sort of cumbersome. And I just wanted some basic tools for me to make my experiments, my biohacking and my lifestyle easily recordable. So I could look at the results from sort of a, a removed position, look back, look at the journal, see what had happened, look at the relationship between my experiments and the outcome.
1: So, all right, you t- just mentioned gastric bypass surgery, which is a, a pretty amazing non-bulletproof way of losing weight. Were you fat enough that that was on your, on your potential
2: list of things you might do? Oh, absolutely. Uh, my little brother, who's a little heavier now even than I am and was definitely heavier at the time he had gastric bypass. He looked into it. He made the decision that that was the logical thing for him. I argued with him vehemently that that was a bad idea, but my internist actually suggested it to me on multiple occasions. At one time, I qualified, and then I fell out of qualification because of experimenting. I experimented with several diets. I experimented especially with higher-fat, higher-protein diets, and I don't qualify today. I don't come close to it. I don't come close to it, number one, because I don't qualify based on my A1C. My diabetes is not severe enough. and Number two, I'm nowhere near the obesity level today to justify surgery. So It would be an out-of-pocket expense if I went that route. It is an extreme surgery, but it's one of the few things. If you're type 2 diabetic, you're middle-aged, you don't have a lot of self-control— it's one of those few medical solutions that actually provide a permanent solution. The statistics on people who have gastric bypass surgery who stop the, I would say not necessarily the disease, but stop the outcome of the disease from type 2 diabetes is pretty good compared to people who take drugs. The fact of the matter is I experimented with drugs too. I took them all. I took metformin. I took uh, you know, 10 or 15 drugs you can, you can list, including biota which at one time was, you know, the injections were beta, Um That was cutting edge at one time. It, every time that a new drug would come out, every time I would try something new, what I found was is your tolerance to the drug would increase as you took the drug. The effect would decrease. And the end result was you were eventually going to be injecting insulin and losing limbs. And this sounds extreme, but that's what happens to people who don't take care of their type 2 diabetes.
1: Yeah, that's never been on my list of, of fun things to have done, that's for sure. I, I can tell you, they told me I was you know, pre-diabetic and 300 pounds, but I managed to discover the biohacking things I've discovered uh, before I got to the point where you are. But I'm I'm stoked to hear that you've had some pretty good responses here. When along this path did you decide to start making self-tracking apps for other people to use? Like, Tell me more
2: about this Dose IQ stuff. Well, like I said, I tried a couple of different things for my own health choices and what I found was that people would tell you things like what their diet consists of or what they did as far as sleep is concerned, what their exercise regimen happens to be. and You look at the the relationship between between these different things and I found that conventional wisdom never matched up 100% with what I experimented on. So uh, let me give you just a couple of examples there's what most endocrinologists will give you as the diabetic diet. And if you go on the diabetic diet, I'm sure you're aware of, you know, it's a, a big important thing to most endocrinologists, at least it was until very, very recently, that you include grains, that you include, um, <laughs> I, you know, it's part of the diet. You know, you, it's whole it's good for different. revenues.
1: It's very important. Yeah,
2: well, <laughs> so the, the funny thing is, you know, when I sat down with my mom, when she had her, her, she had bypass surgery, heart disease-related bypass surgery. And, you know, mom gets the zipper. She was 52 years old, and we were both diagnosed diabetics at the time. And I sat down with mom, and we looked at the relationship between metabolic syndrome and heart disease. And the goal with her, of course, was to not die, don't have a second heart attack. And when we looked at the diet that the endocrinologist provided for her, it was basically a laundry list of how to kill yourself through nutrition. And we started looking at how she would respond. And the reason we knew was because she was injecting insulin. She was testing sometimes five or ten times a day. And as she would eat, she noticed that if she ate things that were high on the glycemic index, that this is an old science thing. This was, you know, back in Atkins' days. This is not new information. She noticed that if she ate the things that they suggested were healthy, nutritious foods that her blood sugars would go up and if she skipped those meals and she stuck to the terrible foods, you know, meat, butter, eggs, that sort of stuff, that glucose levels would come down. And since the number one risk for her was elevated glucose levels, it became fairly obvious pretty quickly that listening to that strategy wasn't going to work. Inside of six months, she went from being a full-on uncontrolled type 2 diabetic who was injecting insulin to being totally diet controlled and under a 6A1C. And that told me something. That was a long, long time ago. It took probably another, I don't know, eight or nine years before I caught on and changed my lifestyle. That's pretty impressive. I, th-
1: those differences are, are non trivial. So how does, what do you do with your application? Like if people are listening to the show, and by the way, prepare for an onslaught on your website when you give us the URL. <laughs> <laughs> that, that
2: sort of happens. Sorry about that. Oh, that's awesome. We're prepared. So i q basically does a couple of things. The Android application right now tracks a few, what we consider important health metrics. First of all, the most important thing, I think you would agree, is the what do you eat? The things you eat, are very impactful on your wellness. It, it affects, especially if you're type 2 diabetic or if you're a little overweight, it affects the way you feel, your energy levels. The nutrition you put in your body is a direct impact element. So there's a bunch of ways people already have to track. You can take a journal. And we know from talking to successful people that if you're successful, you probably journal. You keep track of the things you do. It doesn't matter what you do. If you're in politics, if you're a scientist, if you're an athlete, you track what you do, the process of getting from A to B, and then the outcome. So journaling is very important. You could track calories, macronutrients. You could type your stuff in manually. We went a little different route. We just let you take a picture. So you plot your app you take a photo of your food, and we want to make that as simple as possible. So that you take your snapshot, it puts it up into your journal, it timestamps it automatically for you. It's pretty pain-free. If you can just remember to take a photo, that's all there is to it. But we also let you track other things. You can track your weight, you can track your glucose readings, you can track your mood. We have this thing called a CME. This is your comfort, mood, and energy level. And the reason that we have a comfort, mood, and energy level is that you can scale one to five how you feel in comfort. This is Are you in a little bit of pain? Are you kind of sore? Like, did you just go to the gym? Are you feeling some uh, some acid buildup in your muscle tissue? Well, that's not a high level of comfort. And then your mood, what's your mood like? Are you really sad? Are you depressed? Are you pretty angry? Or are you feeling pretty positive? Uh, one to five again. And then your energy level. Because these are three separate parts of how you feel. They're different indicators.
1: It, it's interesting that you picked uh, CME. It was... That was exactly what I used in my orgasm experiments that I wrote about on the blog. Like, If you want a number about how you're doing every day, you sort of put all that stuff together into a one-to-five, and there you go. That's the broadest indicator that something's working or not working, and then you play with the variables. So I, I love
2: that you included that.
0: It's
2: a very important factor. As a matter of fact, in the next version of the application, we're creating icons that give you sort of a visual reference point. so You can look at your diet, you can look at your exercise program, you can look at Other things you track, including glucose levels for people who are tracking glucose, which is an important indicator, in my opinion. And you can look at your CME, and it gives you a total picture of how these things relate. My goal as a biohacker is to find how to get to the goal with as little pain as possible. But there's another thing that's really important, too, and that is apparently just knowing what to do isn't enough it's not enough that I know I should eat certain things. It's not enough that I know I should have a certain amount of physical exertion in my day. I, I really have a hard time, and I think most people do, have a hard time making myself do those things. And tracking how those things affect your mood and your comfort and your energy level I think are very key to figuring out why some things do and some things do not work. It's true
1: that there's a whole behavioral aspect. All of us know a lot of things and it's doubly complex because half the things that we know came from big industry, eat grains and crap like that. But even if you've read the stuff on the Bulletproof Diet and you've done your own research and you know what to do, it doesn't mean that you're not sometimes going to do something else for reasons that are not immediately clear to yourself. And yeah, that's where tracking helps create a feedback loop for you. So I I think tracking is terribly important the way you're doing it.
2: Well, that was the hardest part for me. You know, When I would try something, I would have a lot of success. Uh, I, for example, I did the slow-carb diet, and I had some success with that. Yeah, it, it's decent. It's not, a, it's, it's not the worst way to lose weight. So I, I did that program, and I had some success, and then I fell off the wagon. And a very important question that I think everybody should ask themselves is why? Why do you fall off the wagon? How do you get back on? What was missing in the structure and the protocol you had before? Or how did it affect you in a way that allowed you to fall off the wagon? I think looking at those patterns are very important on the positive and on the negative side. And that's why I started the company and the reason that I developed the apps the way that I do is I wanted as simple as possible a protocol for someone, number one, to record religiously. Because again, I think if you journal and you record, you have something to look back on. Uh, number two, to make it easy to understand, so you can see, we're very visual creatures, human beings, and to have that so you can look at it in a snapshot and see the relationship, I think is very powerful at changing behavior. Yeah, it it is absolutely the cognitive
1: loop there is huge, and then there's the subconscious, you know, instinctive behaviors, and where I find a lot of people get stuck is they're getting instinctive things from their mammalian brain, the Labrador in their head that's like, Oh, look, eat that. It's poop. Eat that too. Like like they'll eat crap, (laughs) literally. So uh, what's going on there is that mapping between the conscious and subconscious. And when you start that journaling, suddenly you have a conscious knowledge of every time the Labrador in the back of your head said, Oh, let's eat that. And then you just become more aware of that. So it's really synergistic that, Tracking what you eat and how you feel could actually bring about more self-awareness of the subconscious processes in your mind. But that's my experience. And with my coaching clients, it's the same thing. Once the awareness dawns, you start to become the master of that. And who would have thought that tracking and quantifying the self would have been the pathway for that? But it totally works. Well, tell, tell me a little bit more about some of your experiments. I'm dying to hear, okay, what's your take on Bulletproof Coffee? I know you tried it. I know that, you know, you, your friends like it and all, but give give me a little bit more about what you do with that, why you do it, and then let's talk about what happened when you're like, all right, let's do this Bulletproof thing like crazy with your butter
2: egg challenge. But first, like, what, what's your use of coffee like? Well, first of all, my friends are horrified when they see me drop butter into coffee. It's it, It's... The people have so bought into the idea that dietary cholesterol causes heart disease. Every time I do it in front of new people, I have to preach to them that I'm not killing myself. I have the labs to prove that this is not bad for you. And When somebody sees you cut off a piece of, co- of butter and put it in a piece of coffee, and I've got my little portable blender, I love doing this in public. I know. <laughs> I, was actually, I was actually thrown out of a coffee shop for doing that. Really? <laughs> You're my hero. <laughs> a, local, a, local, a local coffee shop told me that it was against health ordinance to blend my, my butter into my coffee. Um, <laughs> it became a little bit – anyway, the, the funny thing about it is when you do it, it horrifies people. They, they have this ingrained belief system, and I, you know, I'd love to get into the politics of why people believe this stuff. It's kind of crazy, but there's been a campaign, an organized anti-animal fat campaign – for decades, and people believe that butter is very dangerous. Uh, somehow they believe that margarine is healthier, and the data consistently shows that's not the case. But the interesting thing is everybody looks at it the first time, and they're, they're disgusted because they've been trained to believe that. And every time I blend a cup of, of Bulletproof coffee and hand it to someone, and say, look, forget what you think this is and drink it. They find out that it's one of the most flavorful lattes that a person can enjoy. Yes. It's really a tasty thing. So, I found that you actually led me to the study at Quantified Self where they used butter on a daily basis to, to improve cognitive function. And so I ran a little personal experiment with using butter, uh, specifically bulletproof coffee, and I found that it actually helped. It helped my performance quite a bit. So I get up in the morning, I blend my bulletproof coffee, and I felt pretty good from then to like 1 o'clock in the afternoon. It's just you know, 5 a.m. morning for me till about uh, 1 o'clock in the afternoon. I am just on fire. It really improves my thinking. It gives me more resource in my uh, vocabulary. It, it helps me to, to think about complex things better, to stay focused on work. But as I said, people were horrified. So I, I would get the looks and the glares and the comments. <laughs> uh, you're going to die of a heart attack. And finally, one day, I, I challenged someone. I said, Well, what's your data point? What do you mean? Well, where's your evidence that drinking bulletproof coffee, drinking butter in my coffee specifically, is going to cause me to have a heart attack? Well, it causes high cholesterol. Okay, well, let's test that. So, interestingly, most of the fat in the experiment I'm talking about did not come from butter, it actually came from eggs. So, I decided the two things in my diet that people found. Horrifying were eggs, whole eggs specifically, and butter. So I decided to eat a dozen whole eggs a day and a quarter pound of butter every single day for ninety days. So I did my baseline. I went to my doctor, and I have hyperlipidemia. I'm a little overweight, and I have those challenges. So as do most type two diabetics, and. I did my baseline which was sort of a reasonably controlled carbohydrate diet before but with my sort of common sheets, something I never really got rid of from my slow-carb experiment. And I decided to not change anything about my diet. In other words, I was still going to have the occasional candy bar. I was still going to go on my occasional binge where I would go for two or three days with just you know craziness, eating cake, whatever. Um, not so much the cake, but you know, a lot of the sort of dark chocolates, that sort of thing. And I added to that 12 whole eggs and a quarter pound of butter. So at the beginning of that, I've actually got my, my labs in front of me. Interestingly enough, the number that's really important here is HDL. As you, as you know, one of the key indicators for heart health, HDL, there really isn't a medical way to improve HDL numbers. If you have naturally low HDL, you've got a good chance of developing heart disease. That's according to the people who believe in the lipid theory, right? Mm-hmm. So my, my HDL has always been super low. I'm talking about in the 20s. It's, it's always been really bad. And I've done weightlifting. I've done hardcore dieting. I did, again, the slow-carb diet, which I did for four months. And I would get moderate bumps in my HDL, but never at a point where I started slipping out of the risk factor. So it started off, it was 34 not really impressive. And after 90 days of eating a dozen whole eggs a day and a quarter pound of butter a day, it was 52, which is a lot closer to being outside of risk factor. As a matter of fact, most cardiologists would probably suggest that an HGL of 52 with a total cholesterol under 200 means you're probably not at
1: risk. I, I, I've got to inject a data point here. Sure. I ate the Get Some Now ice cream recipe uh, from the Bulletproof site, which includes nine egg yolks, raw egg yolks, and about a quarter pound of butter. I ate that every day for about six months, and I got my HDL up to 87 doing that. So it, it totally works. Like Your data and my data line up there. Egg yolks are an amazing food.
2: Anyway, go ahead. I didn't, didn't want to interrupt you, but exact same results. Well, the interesting thing is, is that if you look at the difference, if you look at the relationship between my triglycerides, oh, this is an interesting number too. Triglycerides were 200 at the beginning of the experiment. Where do you think it was at the end? Triglycerides are the indicator of fat in your blood, right? Right. I'm eating a monu- – we're talking about you know, 40 times RDA. It's just ridiculous amounts of cholesterol. Mine went from 200 to 119. Beautiful. So the two most important data points – for any cardiologist, the HDL relationship between the HDL and the total cholesterol and the triglycerides, both of mine improved dramatically. <laughs> I love this. So that was the, that's the butter egg experiment. Probably the most, and again, the most horrifying experiment to my friends and family
1: <laughs> yet. I'm hoping when they saw the data, they high-fived you and, and picked up an omelet, but I kind of doubt it. Only my
2: cardiologist and my internist. The, the two people who supported me on this, uh, funny enough, my internist, he and I are friendly and we had a conversation at my dinner table one night about this experiment. I was probably a month into the experiment and I had to eat an additional six eggs in front of him and I explained why I was – we had already had dinner and I went over and I cooked six more eggs, uh, of course, runny yolk. That's the way I like them. and. We had a, a little – he looked at me odd and I explained, the reason I have to do this is I've got to eat a dozen a day uh, and I haven't done my second half dozen. So the uh, funny thing was is he then went on to quote studies about eggs specifically and cholesterol and a nice little story about a man in his 80s who showed up in the an ER. and He had sort of an obsessive compulsive issue where he would eat 20 plus eggs a day. I'm not sure if you're familiar with this. It's a, it's a New England medical journal Uh, Article. And it turned out that this guy's HDL was nearly 100. (laughs) So it's interesting that, you know, that what I found was this showed me something that people in metabolic syndrome research know. And that is the more dietary cholesterol you consume, especially in these animal fats, the higher your HDL.
1: Everyone listening to this should remember those words. Animal fat from healthy animals is not going to kill you. It is going to raise your HDL, which is good for you. I couldn't say it better myself. So you probably want to know about my cold experiments. I do, but first I want to know about testosterone because people complain. They say, Dave, you cheat. Uh, You know, you've used modafinil, and for the record, I'm not on it right now. Uh, And I use testosterone, bioidentical normal replacement stuff, not, you know, Injecting synthetic forms to get jacked or anything weird like that, and I track my numbers. You're also using testosterone, at least you tested it using it in normal physiological doses, right?
2: Well, actually, I'll tell you specifically what I did. I took Axaron for 60 milligrams a a day for 30 days, and my I have hypogonadism, probably due to obesity for decades. And what I found was, for me, I took Axon 60 milligrams a day for 30 days, and my test levels went from the low 200s, mid-200s, to the low 100s. I actually had a cut in free testosterone. So my result, I only did 30 days of, of experimenting with testosterone, was that the combination of being overweight, not addressing that issue, and adding to that uh, synthetic external testosterone was not a positive thing. So, what happened? Well, I can tell you that. So, the interesting thing, because every guy wants to know if they haven't already experimented with this, I'm sure you already have had this conversation with several other people that have experimented with testosterone. Uh, sex drive goes through the roof. The day that you start taking testosterone, your sex drive improves. Um, you, you know, the joke that we had going around the uh, lunch table with my other male friends was it was like being 18 again. <laughs> That was the that was pretty much the beginning and the end of the advantages for me. I gained a little bit of weight. Uh, I don't know that testosterone had anything to do with it, but I sort of got slack on other control factors when I was taking testosterone. I did work out a little bit, but not a lot. I didn't notice any interesting. You know, it was only thirty days, but I didn't notice any comfort. You know, improved recovery. I did have a really good mood in the morning. I would take axon in the morning as prescribed. Um, this is an application testosterone that you put under the arms. And for the first, you know, four to six hours of the day, I felt like a million dollars me be really high, very happy, very aggressive, uh, about one, two o'clock in the afternoon, I would start to crash. And I, I just didn't have, it didn't have, you know, didn't have the 24 hour comfort level I was looking for. I, in the end, the bottom line is I didn't think it was a net positive. So except for the improved sex life, I didn't really see anything great from taking the testosterone at the levels that I did. So I talked with someone who did longevity medicine locally about my experiment after I I discontinued testosterone supplementation. And this physician suggested to me that I took the wrong approach, that simply throwing testosterone on an overweight man
1: who has low T is not the solution. It's not. uh, I totally agree. Okay,
2: cool. um, What else did they say? Well, uh, specifically suggested ECG, suggested some other uh, chemicals to deal with the estrogen factor. One of the interesting things about men who are overweight is it appears abdominal fat specifically causes a conversion in testosterone. So you end up adding free testosterone, you actually convert a more significant portion of that to, to estrogen. In in fact, I
1: I had more estrogen than my mother uh, when I weighed 300 pounds. Yeah, and and adding testosterone just turns up the estrogen because you're so good at converting testosterone to estrogen.
2: Yeah, you know, interestingly enough, that works both ways. The interesting thing about test and estrogen is that apparently in obese women, they have the opposite response. Uh, It seems that women who are obese, especially abdominal fat again, that you see women who are obese and they develop facial hair, they start having issues with hormone problems, acne. Uh, Apparently, this is the thing that just sort of ruins sexuality on both ends. So what I took from my experiment, what I I took from talking to experts in the field, was that you really probably should target, first and foremost, the weight loss. If you're obese, everything you do is complicated. It, it's totally true and
1: the good thing is it's not that hard to target the obesity like it used to be. If you just have bad data or you're not tracking yourself, it's, it's really difficult and it takes years and you fall off the bandwagon and all that stuff but if you can turn off food cravings which in my experience and most of the people who've used it, Bulletproof Coffee in the morning turns off food cravings for at least half the day and if you're eating a high fat diet, it, it's, it's just much more accessible and it happens faster. So you do that and then maybe adding testosterone after that and calcium d or CDG, which I blog about, it increases your liver's ability to get estrogen out of the body. So I found that that worked at least as well for me as Arimidex, the aromatase inhibitor. So just going with you know, getting rid of all the extra fat that I used to carry around, getting a little bit of muscle mass by exercising once a week or every 10 days or something all of a sudden, aromatization, this conversion to estrogen went away. So, the testosterone that I do supplement with keeps me in the normal range, but doesn't raise the estrogen. So, if, if you go back to your experiment, you might have some really good results by just either blocking the conversion or increasing the,
2: uh, the clearance of estrogen from your body. So, I, I did notice there's an interesting thing you're talking about using the bulletproof coffee. One of the things that I got this from you, by the way, I read your blog post on uh, accelerated fat loss. Yeah, and I, and I should admit, by the way, I, I don't know how often I tell people this, but it's important to understand that I'm not a six-pack guy. that's not what I'm after.
1: Yeah, I mean, my
2: either. goal yeah, my goal is simply to, uh, to not die prematurely. I'm not looking for a, a fitness model body. So in my weight loss strategy, I have not been very interested in rapid accelerated weight loss. I'm changing my position on that. you know, I've lost pretty consistently five to ten pounds a year for quite a while now i'm I'm a full thirty five pounds less than I was at my peak, so I've had significant weight loss on my frame, that's pretty significant. I'm only five foot nine, so thirty five pounds is a lot of weight. and I, pri- I primarily looked for for fitness, just to feel better, to sleep better, to perform better. Uh, I'm becoming more and more convinced that the extra weight I have has got to go as fast as possible. And one of the things when I got back from South by Southwest recently, I was out at South by Southwest, there's a lot of good food out there, a lot of bad food out there, and lots of booze. And when you party, you're sleeping one, two hours a day, and you're spending a lot of time on your feet, and you're eating a lot of horrible food. Um, That takes its toll pretty quickly. Even one week, you put on a lot of junk, uh, water retention, and you will add some fat. When I came home, I tried doing the intermittent fasting and I used butter specifically in doing that because that's one of the things that grass fed butter, you encourage people to use that. I, I found that I cut, actually, did, I cut almost 10 pounds in a matter of about a week and a half, two weeks. I love it. So, intermittent fasting is extremely efficient. If you just need to, and I'll tell you that 10 pounds, Makes all the world a difference. If you so need to you were, peel five or ten pounds off, it's a fast way to do it. You were doing bulletproof intermittent fasting with the butter
1: versus because there's there's plain like lean gains intermittent fasting where you just eat nothing in the morning. But I, I found that that you end up getting cravings and cold and brain fog and sometimes you get uh, like you actually hit a plateau with it. But just so people understand, were you doing
2: like lean gain style IF or were you doing bulletproof IF? No, no, I did both. I've okay. d- I've done both. When I came back, I did uh, bulletproof fasting. So okay. it makes a huge difference in the way you feel. Uh, i I found my energy level and my clarity was much higher if I did, if I did bulletproof fasting versus uh, lean gang i I've done both, and my, my finding is that um, although you you eventually lose the craving, you know if you do this long term, probably three to five days even, you start to lose that really painful gut-wrenching hunger um, with intermittent fasting, You know, waiting and doing, say, a, a window, say, 2 to 4, 2 to 6, whatever you happen to choose. Yeah. Um, I found adding bulletproof coffee in the morning virtually eliminated that right off the bat.
1: Love it. Okay, so, so you did that, and you, you cut about 10 pounds in a week and a half, about a pound a day, and a lot of that was water weight from glycogen. But overall, that, that's pretty, pretty cool. Testosterone didn't work. Let's talk ice baths.
2: So this is Ray Carnes's fault. Um, I Ray Carnes is a guy who lives close to me in Huntsville, Alabama. He was a, a NASA scientist. Uh, there's a TED Talk at TED Med. You can watch his video. And Ray did something similar to what I've tried in the past, which is he lost a significant amount of weight quickly. And he decided that uh specifically the story if you if you watch the TED Med he talks about this. The story he tells is that you remember when wait, there was a swimmer?
1: <laughs> you
2: remember the swimmer? Uh,
1: Michael Phelps, or which one? Yes,
2: that's yeah. the one, Michael Phelps. There's a swimmer, and the swimmer claims to eat twelve thousand calories a day. And Ray did some math, and he determined there was absolutely no way he was exercising twelve thousand calories a day worth of food off his body. And and the guy looks like he's three to five percent body fat. He looks extremely lean. Yep. So. He determined that it must have been the water contact, the submersion in water, immersion in water, for an extended period of time every day. It was the length of time he spent in low-temp water is what really made the difference. And he decided that he would experiment in in his own weight loss strategy by exposing himself to colder temperatures, by taking cold showers, by consuming cold water. So... In my first exp- uh, my first experiment with trying to just run up the heating bills, he would say uh, to lose weight more rapidly, I did the same thing I, except for I went all the way to the extreme. I actually would take thirty or forty pounds of ice, put it in the bathtub, fill it up with water and I know people there's people wincing listening to this right now yep. it, it's not that bad, okay, it's awful. I, I've, I've done it too,
1: for sure, the, the Jack Cruz style of, of ice baths. It, it, it's amazing, but it's, it's horrible at first, and then all of a sudden you get used to it.
2: Yeah, it takes a couple of minutes of you know, pure misery. And then, but you got to keep in mind, everything you do in the beginning is pure misery. The first time you lift a weight, it's absolutely pure miserable. And the first time that you go on a diet and you drop, say, carbs from your diet, or specifically you drop bread from your diet, you think you're going to die. You don't. So ice is the same way. Um, I couldn't do ice shower. I couldn't do cold showers. I could do ice baths. The showers would drive me crazy. I know that sounds counterintuitive, but I I found cold showers to be unacceptable. So I I did it for a little bit of a different reason though, because one of the things I found was in reading the, the justification behind this. And then back when I first learned about this, there wasn't a lot of knowledge about brown tissue. And, It turns out that there's this certain kind of fat, brown fat, that babies have that was previously believed not to exist in adults, and it turns out it actually does exist in adults, and it seems to be turned on by cold exposure. So very small amounts of cold exposure can turn, we're talking about 10, 20 minutes of cold exposure, can turn this tissue on and sort of run up the heating bill, so to speak, What it seems to do is increase the body's ability to consume glucose in the muscle tissue. It increases sensitivity to insulin, which is a big problem for especially people like me, type 2 diabetics. Got a little bit of gut fat. You're probably in that category. And what I found was this was a thing I could use to control my diabetes without having to inject things and take pills. Hold on here.
1: Are you you telling me that the diabetes drug companies are going to be buying ice manufacturers to increase growth? I bet not. (laughs) Maybe they should. (laughs) It's pretty profound what it does for you. And I love the way you said you feel like you're going to die. And almost everything makes you feel like you're going to die that that's good for you. Exercise? Oh, wait. Uh, at first, when you exercise, your body says, Don't make me do that, I might die. And dieting or going without food, I might starve. So it it all goes back to that Labrador brain. And if you just make yourself sit there for two minutes in the ice bath, all of a sudden that part of your brain goes, I guess I'll quit whining. And then you relax. And I actually found it very meditative to sit in there. Like it wasn't miserable at all once you got past that holy crap stage.
2: Well, I found that, yeah, you sit down in a tub of ice water, and, and I don't know what the temperature you would shoot for actually recorded the temperature i bought a thermometer and i would test my temps yep. and i went everything from 34 degrees to about 60 45 was my target that was that was your target yeah i found that when i when i got below that's about the range that i, I settled on it was about 42 to 50 was was my range and i found that was extremely effective it definitely decreases my glucose levels almost instantaneously you can get out of the bath let me tell you a couple things that I think people would find surprising because you just sort of alluded to it. It's almost climatic when you leave the ice bath. And I noticed a couple of things that would happen when I would get out of the ice bath. This, I would do a 20-minute, 10-minute uh, waist down and then 10-minute uh, arms out, full-body sub, uh, submersion. And what I found was about 20 minutes of cold exposure in about 45, 42 to 50-degree water I would leave the ice bath with an extreme clarity yes, and comfort. It was, it was almost embarrassing how good I felt when I left the ice bath. And it almost became addictive. I, I found that I could think in ways I couldn't think before. Um, sleep was amazing. I, w- I would sleep five or six hours, and it felt like I had been asleep for a weekend. i wake up extremely rested. With a completely different outlook on life, very positive mood. It it had mood enhancement, it, it had spiritual value. It oh, I don't know if you ever tried this out, but if you would taste things, if you would and for me it was a glass of wine, I would have about three ounces of a Bordeaux or um, a Cabernet. Shocking what it would do to your taste buds. It was mind blowing. I found that the
1: drinking coffee afterwards, like like iced coffee. The flavor there, it's same thing, every little nuance comes out. It's like high fidelity headphones versus non high fidelity.
2: It really is and and um, and I'm gonna go ahead and throw this out there. Sex is pretty awesome too. well,
1: it's pretty awesome anyway, isn't it? I'm just kidding <laughs> <laughs> but yeah it it is uh and it's weird though, because your body's cold for a while i I remember one time i I had one of those horrible trade shows in Las Vegas. kind of like South by Southwest, you know, where you're just on your feet all the time and constantly talking. And I'm like, you know, I'm going to go back to my hotel room. I'm going to sit in an ice bath for a half hour. I emptied the ice machine at the hotel place. uh, And I brought my body temperature down. And then I went out for like the night's partying. And and I was at some really exclusive party with uh, a playmate of the year uh, was there. And it was uh, like probably 40, 50 people. So she came up and put her arm around me. And like recoiled I was was like oh my god you're so cold i'm like oh (laughs) yeah that's right i just got out of an ice bath (laughs) and i I don't know if if that you know made me more attractive or less uh but it was kind of funny because everyone who shook my hand was like oh my god you really are cold but i never felt cold i felt like i was just glowing like i just felt so good and my brain was turned on and inflammation that builds up when you walk around these things and you know you're just constantly moving it had just gone away, and I just felt like I was so in the zone, even though apparently I felt like I was maybe only half alive. <laughs> like when you touch my skin,
2: I, I found the same. So the wife hates it, by the way. When I <laughs> when I come to bed after an ice bath, yeah. she she pretty much has a rule that I have to go somewhere for a while before hopping in bed. I've got to warm up. Uh, do you get grandma shakes, by the way, when you come out of the ice baths? No, not normally. I'll get out of the ice bath right before the shivers start.
1: Like I'll I'll suppress them as best I can, and right when they're like really about to come, then it's like, okay, it's time for me to get out.
2: So are you aware that there's actually been studies? Because one of the theories originally was that the shivers were what activated the brown fat tissue. Um, It turns out the indications are that's not the case. So I I would do the same thing, by the way. I I didn't shake. And so I, I would get out and just be cold. I my mean, skin's really cold for probably 30, 45 minutes, but I did it both ways. I would stand until I started shaking and I've tried it without shaking. The worst thing in the world for my relationship with my wife was to hop in bed and shiver for an hour.
1: Yeah, that, that doesn't work very well, although it is. Uh, it, if you've ever you know been with a, a woman who's having hot flashes, uh, it, it's kind of a nice revenge, right? <laughs>
2: I haven't gone
1: through that yet. So, so when women get hot flashes, they, they they literally like melt sheets off the bed. Like like their body temperature goes way up, and they just like like radiate heat, and it's almost impossible to sleep next to uh, someone who has uh, menopause and hot flashes. So well, well, it's kind of like well, here's the antidote: like I'll just be an ice cube, and it's just sort of a funny idea. But anyway, <laughs> I hear those questions a lot <laughs> from from my clients. <laughs>
2: oh yeah, so. You, you told me that you tried, uh, you've done cold therapy. Did you experiment with using cold therapy with supplements to, accept, to accentuate the cold therapy? Uh, which supplements are you talking about? Well, like using either caffeine before or using um, capsian or some, some kind of uh, like a pepper or something. Did you try different?
1: I, I've used uh, capsaicin, you know, the, the cayenne stuff. Uh, right. For its ability to change substance P. And what, what's going on there is people who have chronic inflammation have elevated levels of substance P, and there's a gut hormone, one that actually I write about called VIP, and people with uh, just this chronic inflammation thing usually have VIP and substance P problems. So if you can drop substance P with cayenne, and you can use... Uh, the ice baths to change the levels of VIP in the gut, which by the way, you can only do with either injected or inhaled VIP, which is a very expensive kind of alternative medical doctor therapy with compounded drugs. Wow, ice baths modulate the levels of VIP in the gut, which modulate the level of inflammation throughout the body. Uh, Anyhow, I I found that that combination did kind of wonderful things for me, but I never like quantified, did I lose an extra half a pound or something? What I target first and foremost is inflammation because when you kill inflammation, your cognitive function goes up, and your weight loss goes up, and you feel good all the time, and like that's the bulletproof state. What's your take on using supplements or drugs along with it?
2: Well, I tried several, um, and I'll run through them. Probably we'll have a minute to talk about my experiments with uh, cognitive enhancement medications, and I tried, uh, I've tried i tried spaz on Paracetam, for example— okay. Paracetam and choline. Um, wow. <laughs> um, I, I'm just, so I'm going to admit to something that I tell my friends. I don't often talk about this in public. Uh, paracetam plus choline plus uh, techno music plus ice baths. <laughs> Dude, you're so weird. You're <laughs> at home here. <laughs> it's it so funny that I, you know, I, I really. I wonder what it did to my brain. I never really liked techno music. I was never a fan. And we just happened to have, uh, we don't have television television. We have internet on the TV. And I I happened to, it was after taking some Prastam for studying, I was sitting down and studying and I wanted some noise in the background. So I turned on uh, techno because I knew I wouldn't pay attention to it. And over the course of say 10, 15 minutes, I started really getting into the music. It just sounded so amazing. Uh, something about taking parastamicoline and, and, and compounding that with ice baths really turned up my receptors and the music really stimulated my brain. It really made me feel very euphoric. But I've tried that, I've done caffeine. I found I didn't see the advantage of caffeine before. You talked about drinking coffee afterward. I did see the same thing, by the way. I would drink coffee afterward and it just tasted so amazing. Um, more of an enjoyment of enjoying the way that the caffeine, that the coffee tastes. Uh, tea is the same way. I would, I'm a big fan of uh, robust, for example, and drinking robots afterward. It tastes so sweet and so savory. I did use cayenne. Uh, cayenne fruit, I would take pills and a little bit of oil or a little bit of fat before I would jump into the bath. And that seemed to really make the recovery better. I don't know that it made the ice bath itself affect me different, but it seems like you know, that cold sort of uncomfortable period for uh, your, your topical skin temp, that seemed to warm up more quickly. I'm not exactly sure if that's because it increases your thermostat or if it's just a matter of creating blood flow. From the caffeine you're talking about? No, no, no from taking cayenne. Oh, from cayenne? Yes.
1: It's a release of substance P, uh, that causes that skin flushing effect. Uh, and substance P is like the primordial pain-sensing mechanism that all organisms, even snails, have. So at least all multi-celled organisms have. So it, it can cause that skin flushing when you take it, which would probably be actual warmth
2: happening. So I don't know much about substance P. I have to learn more about this. What is the relationship between substance P and the effect of the ISP, the other things we're looking for, which would be increase uh, increased caloric consumption, increase uh, insulin sensitivity. What what else is going on with substance P. I'm
1: pretty sure that there's an insulin sensitivity and a substance P connection, but I'm not really sure. The reason I'm familiar with substance P is that it's elevated in people with fibromyalgia, chronic fatigue, and arthritis. So it is one of those primordial things. And when you when you do anything that lowers levels of substance P, those conditions Change. It also has a big, infe- a big effect on your sleep levels. So if you can lower Substance P, you sleep better. So as a sleep hacker and you know biohacker and a guy who's had chronic inflammation and you know Lyme disease and fibromyalgia kind of stuff uh, in the past, it's pretty amazing what happens when you do something. Uh, the biggest hack I know for Substance P isn't actually ice baths. Uh, it's getting your jaw alignment perfectly. Perfectly aligned and I'll I'll write about that at some point on the blog, but there's all sorts of things that happen But you mentioned something about taste and I wanted to make sure we talked about that I'm pretty sure that the sensory stuff around taste Is actually happening because of that. I'm going to die three minute period when you get an ice bath This is the part of your body. That's there to keep you alive. It's there as an instinctive response But it gets in the way all the time of your peak performance and your peak states and you're experiencing these things. So when it realizes after three minutes of yelling that nothing's going to happen, it shuts up. And when it shuts up, your ability to experience reality, whether it's music or taste or smell or sex or anything else, it goes up and the underpinning for the entire Bulletproof state that I keep talking about there is getting that part of your brain to shut up enough that you can actually be fully present in the moment and experience all these amazing things that are happening around you that you're probably not really paying attention to because you're too worried about dying at a subconscious animal level. Ice baths just help to shut that off. I'm,
2: I'm 99% sure this is the underlying mechanism. Well, I I definitely love the outcome. Uh, there, yes. There's a few things I've done that have given me the sort of sensory improvement that, that ice baths have given me.
1: I love the idea of mixing eracetam, uh, I'm, I'm a fan of aracetam because it's faster acting and fat soluble and it sort of goes well with coffee because of that fat transport, uh, but paracetam is something I've taken for years as well, uh, so that combination, if you just want to completely absorb into what you're doing, yeah, it's it's magic stuff. And here we go talking about something way beyond just smart drugs, but you know, stacking your smart drugs with um, bulletproof coffee and an ice bath if you really want to rock your day. I don't know how many people are going to do that. <laughs> but, all right, we're getting we're getting low on time, but we need to talk about something that's important for people who may feel like they should go sit in 30 pounds of ice, and that is the safety of ice baths. I, I got first-degree ice burns over 15% of my body learning about this stuff. I'm a huge fan of using compression shorts and a compression shirt, especially when you're first learning to do ice baths. Otherwise, you'll get in there, you'll feel like you're doing fine, and when you get out, all the capillaries in your skin are going to go, oh, it's warm again. It's an emergency. I might die. i better send a lot of blood there fast, and you get ruptured capillaries and bruising. So there's protocols online. In fact, I've got some on the site where I talk about getting used to this, teaching your, your vagal nerve by, by putting bags of ice on your face for a minute a day for a while, just to get yourself past that dying thing. What are your safety protocols there? I just don't want someone who listens to the show to go out there and you know burn themselves.
2: Well, if you're going to do ice baths, I, I, yeah, I was going to tell you, there's a couple of things I do that are very important. Number one, never do an ice bath nude. Just... <laughs> Do not do it, yeah brother um <laughs> uh, i be mean, I don't mean to be crude, but especially if you're a guy, there are parts of your body that are exposed, they need to be protected you can you can you can seriously injure yourself with uh even with forty five degree water you can seriously injure yourself so um uh, it's not just a matter of temporary pain, you can end up with bruising, you can end up with uh with ruptures, so yeah, I would agree um I did the same thing by the way, I would use compression shorts and I also use a compression shirt. The other thing is you got to be careful about your toes, especially if you're doing this because you want to lower glucose levels and you're diabetic. You need to watch those toes. Keep your toes out of the water. Just don't have small appendages in the water. Um, If you have small appendages in the water, they need to be covered. So the two things that are most important for me to, to not experience damage or pain is I keep my toes out of the water and I keep my fingers out of the water. Um, th- those two things alone will save you a lot of pain.
1: Really, really good points. Uh, getting claw, that thing where you, you can't open your fingers that cold water distance triathlete type of swimmers talk about, it's just unpleasant, and I'm not sure it's good for your joints, to be perfectly honest. Like, there's nerves that are delicate in there. So keep, keep, uh, keep those things out. And I've also experimented with wearing a knit cap, like to keep heat in the head, and
2: I didn't find a big difference from that, but some people like to do that as well. I never tried that. I, I found that my head stayed pretty warm. Uh, let me say one thing, though, that you want to be careful about. There's two, probably two things that I just take for granted that may not be common sense. One is you also want to be careful about how you respond to hypothermia, and especially if you're taking it in stacks with drugs, if you're using things, even mild things like caffeine and, and cayenne, you want to see how you respond to these things. I, I did one of my first experiments. I put seventy plus pounds of ice into a bath. Was way on the south side. It was. It measured thirty-two. And when I when I I did a long experiment about a forty-five minute submersion in, um, in seventy pounds of ice, and I I almost lost consciousness. So, what'll happen is you have two things that happen. One is you can have a severe drop in blood pressure and blood and pulse, so blood flow reduces dramatically to your extremities. Um, you can lose consciousness if you're doing extreme ice or cold exposure. So I would encourage anyone who experiments with this to also have someone else with them, the first few times especially, and sort of try try warmer cold exposure, the 60s, the 50s. I would not encourage someone to fill the ice. You know, fill full the tub up with 70 pounds of ice and spend 45 minutes in it. Uh,
1: you are, uh, you said it exactly right and I'm really serious about this too. I, the last thing I want is someone to gain from this knowledge and then go out and accidentally drown because they lost consciousness in e- extreme cold water. There is no reason that I ever found to sit in 32 degree water versus 45 and even 50 or 60 is, is just as manly <laughs> as anything else. <laughs> <laughs> you'll get the benefits. You don't have to be a masochist to deal with ice therapy and, and to get the benefits. So just uh, you know, have someone there, uh, or you know, set, set an alarm, uh, d- do something. But best of all, know your body's response by testing it with help, and then feel free to you know sit in a hotel room with you know ten or twenty pounds of ice for twenty minutes because you know darn well that you'll be fine when you're done. Oh, absolutely! Awesome. On that amazing note. Tell us where we can learn more about
2: Dose IQ, Jason, because we're at the end of the show. Well, go to DOSIQ. The idea of dose IQ is simply that the more you understand how things you consume and do affect your body and your wellness, the higher your dose IQ. Uh, we dropped the E because you know we're an internet company, so it's just dosIQ.com.
1: Awesome. We'll definitely be sending some people your way. And we can't end the show yet because I forgot. There's a question I've asked everyone who's ever been on the show, and I wouldn't want to break that record. So what are your top three most important things for kicking more ass, basically for being higher performance in all domains of life? So not just biohacking or anything else, but if you know you had to take someone who's a blank slate and say, do these three things to be the most successful you'll ever be at everything you do, what are those three things?
2: Well, it sounds awfully self-serving, but I think journaling is super important. I think recording, keeping track, and reviewing is very, very important. Secondly, you have to understand that you need to take care of yourself. You have got to you gotta be in, in top physical top physical condition in order to be a top performer in anything, whether it's emotional, mental, anything competitive, you wanna be in good physical condition. And thirdly, I think the thing that affects me, and this is going to be a very specific, what I do, I I make sure that I consume some bulletproof coffee every day. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can't argue with your logic there, but I have to say thank you.
1: I, I I'm the same way. It, it's in my top <laughs> my top list because it it changed my life, right? Um, and by the way, just to everyone listening, I did not ask for that. We did not pre-discuss these answers. That was just random off the cuff, but <laughs> thanks, man. <laughs> oh, I love it. Thank you for turning me on to that. That's awesome. You got it. Well, have, have a wonderful day, and thanks again for the interview. This, is, this has just been a lot of fun, and it's been super cool to be able to chat about everything from Parastam to ice baths to self-tracking all in one interview. So thanks for being a good biohacker.
2: Oh, thank you. I enjoyed it very much.